First, our lesson this morning from the Older Testament. Am I turned on? In matter of speaking. (laughs) From Zechariah 8, verses 20 to 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I'm going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. You and I are Gentiles. Today we are here because we have taken hold of the robe of one Jew, and that because we believe not only that God is with him, but that he is indeed God incarnate. And from Acts, Acts 16, the story of Lydia Setting sail, therefore, from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Thram of Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We, may, we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. <clears throat> One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. And when she was baptized with her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And lastly, from Matthew 15. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and cried, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely possessed by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the woman came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. Jesus answered, It's not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. In 1939, 67% of the Canadian people lived below the poverty line. Today, only 17% of Canadian people live below the poverty line. Plainly, a much larger proportion of Canada is better off materially. In addition, the poverty line itself means something different now. For instance, 
anywhere else in the world, anyone who had access to Canada's medical care and public education and criminal justice system would be considered extraordinarily privileged. The poorest people in Canada have access to carriage trade health services. Therefore, even the 17% who live below their poverty line are well off in many respects compared to the rest of the world. Now, in saying this, I'm not denying for a minute that some Canadians continue to live in dreadful poverty. I must say, however, that we Canadians are better off materially than our foreparents ever were or ever could have imagined. I'm aware, for instance, that I am affluent. The only difference between my affluence and the super-rich persons is that the latter can buy bigger toys and his financial statements have more zeros on the page. Right now I have more clothes than I can wear out, more food than I need. And books. If I live to be 150 years old, I still won't have read all the books I have purchased and purchased in as much as I could afford them. I can sleep in only one bed at a time, and I have a bed. Furthermore, since wealth is measured not by what we own, that's the mistake too many people make, wealth isn't measured by what we own, but rather by what we have access to. And since I have access to legal aid, employment insurance, public libraries and swimming pools and parks, I'm doubly affluent. I think I'm as affluent as I should ever want to be. I'm certainly as well off as I shall ever need to be. Lydia, <clears throat> the first person to respond to the gospel in Paul's second missionary journey, she sometimes said to be the first European to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Lydia was affluent. She was affluent like Erastus, a Christian from Corinth. Erastus was city treasurer, and Corinth was a major financial center in the Roman Empire. The point I'm making is this. Not everyone who came to faith in Jesus Christ was dirt poor and socially disadvantaged. Part of the mythology of the anti-Christian naysayers is that the Christian faith thrived in an era when few were affluent and the majority were poor. Therefore, the Christian faith thrived inasmuch as it fed and encouraged the resentment and the envy and the acquisitiveness of the have-nots in their murderous pursuit of the haves. The myth is just that, myth. The truth is, our Lord drew people to him from every social and economic class. Let's not forget that Paul himself was a citizen of Rome with all the privileges that accompanied citizenship, and this when very few people in the Roman Empire ever became citizens. Lydia was a businesswoman. <clears throat> she was an entrepreneur, a self-employed cloth merchant. Europeans of her era valued clothing made from cloth that had been dyed an exquisitely beautiful purple. The purple dye came from a substance found in shellfish. It took thousands of shellfish to yield a usable amount of dye. As a result, the purple cloth was exceedingly expensive. Lydia owned and operated a carriage trade business that sold upper-end women's clothing. She wouldn't have been out of place in Toronto's Yorkville or New York's Fifth Avenue. 
The second noteworthy feature of Lydia is that she was a God-fearer in the vocabulary of Acts, a worshipper of God, as some English translations have it. The Greek expression is phobumenoi, phobos, fear, and the phobumenoi in the first century were Gentiles who were attracted to the synagogue in their town or city, but who did not become Jewish converts. They worshipped week by week with the Jewish congregation, and they associated with Jewish people throughout the week, but they never formally became Jews. Why were they drawn to the synagogue? They were attracted by Jewish monotheism and Jewish ethics. The Gentile world of that era was riddled with assorted deities. These pagan gods and goddesses were said to squabble among themselves incessantly and to behave immorally. In other words, pagan religion was no more than a projection of the messed up human heart. Pagan religion constantly reinforced fallen humankind's confusion and savagery and disintegration. There was no help then to be found in pagan religion. The God-fearers, however, recognized in Jewish faith a throbbing conviction that God is one. God is holy. God is exalted. God blesses his people by suffering on their behalf, by delivering them from assorted bondages, and by claiming thereafter their obedience for himself. Earnest, thoughtful, sensitive Gentiles were only too glad to live on the fringe of the synagogue. At the same time, they tended not to take the final step and become Jews. If an adult Gentile male became a Jew, he had to be circumcised. And this in a day and age that knew neither anesthetic nor antiseptic. And Gentile women, they weren't always eager to embrace all the details of the Torah, the dietary restrictions, and so on. Lydia relished the company of the Jewish world without becoming a Jew herself. Today, in your congregation and mine, we'd say she was an adherent. I'm convinced that in the church today we're surrounded with God-fearers. I'm convinced that there are many people in our affluent era who are in fact very close and outlook to Lydia. They are attracted to the church in their neighborhood, be it Presbyterian or Catholic or Baptist or Anglican or whatever. They are attracted by its monotheism and its ethics. At the same time, they are cautious, reserved, lest they appear too eager, too religious. They don't feel they can honestly, unreservedly assent to all the major doctrinal statements, and therefore they don't tend to become church members officially. They may even hesitate to declare themselves Christians. Yet they come to church and they associate with its people because they are attracted by Christian monotheism and Christian ethics. They know that the world is a perilous place. They know it's a jumble of rival ideologies and a jungle ethically. If we asked them whether they believed in God, they'd say yes, even if they had to pause a moment before answering. If we then asked them whether they believed in Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of Man, the world's sole Savior and Lord, the Messiah of Israel, and the coming judge, they would shrink back. And if we said to them, since you're worshiping in a Presbyterian church this morning, rather than a Lutheran, you must think, you have to agree that Calvin's extra Calvinisticum is superior to Luther's communicatio idiomata. If we said this to them, we might not see them for six months. 
But for now, they intuit that Jesus is more than a good man, more than a fine teacher, even though they can't say, what more? They intuit that there's something unique about the cross, even though they can't articulate the atonement or explain how the cross saves anyone. I'm convinced that there are more such people among us than we commonly admit. I'm equally convinced that a major aspect of my ministry is honoring these people in their quest, honoring them and cherishing them. Cherishing them? Yes. After all, in some quarters, such questers are suspect, aren't they? A major aspect of my ministry is to spare no effort, no seriousness, no persistence in helping them. Helping them, that is, until that day when they are possessed by that faith and the assurance of faith which prophets and apostles and saints have found to be as rich as a gold mine, as bright as diamonds, and as resilient as spring steel. We are told that Lydia moved from being a God-fearer to being an enthusiastic disciple as the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. What had Paul said? We aren't told, but we may be sure that he said to her what he said to everybody else. How did Paul speak? We can only assume that he spoke with her as he spoke with everyone else. Liddy would certainly have heard him preach because he preached wherever he went. In addition, we must note carefully, she would have profited from informal conversation with him. Luke tells us that it was as Paul sat with her casually and chatted with her informally that the truth of the gospel dawned upon her and then lit up for her and finally engulfed her. We must never underestimate casual informal encounters. Certainly the apostle didn't. We tend to imagine him addressing crowds the size of the Super Bowl turnout in the Los Angeles Coliseum. Typically, however, Paul preached to small gatherings, far smaller than the people who are assembled today. And of course, we overlook the fact that he most readily spoke with individuals. All of us have no difficulty remembering that Jesus preached to multitudes if only because the word multitude, a word none of you uses in English, in everyday English, we have come to associate particularly with our Lord's public ministry. In turn, we creatures of modernity have come to associate crowds with success and small gatherings with failure. We appear to have enormous difficulty remembering that Jesus spent hours patiently conversing with individuals. Think of Nicodemus, the unnamed woman who spoke with our Lord at high noon in the Samaritan village. Bartimaeus, a blind man who called out to Jesus and for whom the master stopped. Think of the Canaanite woman about whom we read this morning in Matthew 15. She was bold and brassy and sassy. And she spoke to Jesus with feminist ardor and feminist aggressiveness. She was a Gentile. She called out to Jesus, a Jew, that her daughter was bent out of shape. Jesus, the text tells us, did not answer her a word. When she cried out a second time, he said to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and you don't belong to Israel, dog. Now, dog was the way Jewish people commonly spoke of Gentiles. But even canines get to eat table scraps, she sassed him back. 
and so maybe you'd like to give this dog your dinner plate scrapings and help my daughter. Whereupon our Lord did all that she asked of him. In this unusual conversation, Jesus was testing her persistence and her confidence in him. Think of the man whose son suffered from epilepsy. Or the deranged fellow, violent and dangerous, now restored. He wanted to join the twelve. But instead, Jesus told him to go home by himself and tell his family, always the hardest people to speak to, how God had had mercy on him. We tend to think that nothing important is happening unless it's happening to people, many people at once in a large crowd. John Wesley, George Whitfield, Charles Wesley, the leaders of the 18th century awakening, they preached to huge crowds, sometimes upwards of 20,000 people, often several times in the same day. Come nightfall, they had to say somewhere. Over and over I read that when these fellows settled in an inn or a home, they found themselves in earnest conversation, as they described it. Earnest conversation isn't a public address. It isn't a lecture. Above all, it isn't verbal aggressiveness of any sort. If it were, these men would quickly have been invited to move on to another home or another inn. It means rather that when earnest people brought their perplexities and problems and griefs to Wesley privately, he always had time for these people. He was glad to address their problem or perplexity or grief in the light of the gospel, for the gospel was in his bloodstream, and he spoke of it as naturally and unselfconsciously as you and I speak of the weather or the latest newspaper headline. At the very least, earnest conversation was the setting in which someone's needy heart was met by Wesley's overflowing heart. I myself am a preacher who will never undervalue the preaching event. Throughout my ministry, I have given it the attention and diligence that the public declaration of the Word of God demands. Frankly, I am dismayed when I hear sermons that were plainly scratched out on the back of a used envelope between periods of Saturday night's hockey game. At the same time, I know the value of informal conversation. People approach me anywhere at all, in the food store, at the arena, on the street, by the gasoline pump. They casually mention the difficulty or discouragement they don't raise with me on Sunday for who knows what reason and who cares. To be sure, I have never doubted that the sermon is a means of grace, but I'm equally convinced that casual conversation is a means of grace too. Now, I'm not the first to come to this conclusion. Anyone who reads scripture could scarcely doubt it. But if reminders are needed, then one of the more pointed reminders is heard in the 17th century, when the English Puritans insisted that Christian conversation, as the Puritans put it, is a means of grace. Having read the 17th century Puritans, 18th century Methodists insisted that conversation was an instituted, divinely instituted means of grace, along with and on the same level as Scripture, Holy Communion, prayer, and fasting. There are lines from informal, casual conversations that I at least shall never forget. They 
aren't lines that someone labored over in order to turn a cutesy, catchy turn of phrase. They are lines rather that someone spoke as unselfconsciously as you and I would speak of the weather or sports scores. <clears throat> my father, for instance. Throughout his life, my father inculcated in me a passion for excellence and an awareness that non-excellence born of indifference or laziness, that is, unnecessary mediocrity anywhere in life, is nothing less than sin. One evening when I was 16, my father said to me, Last Sunday in church we sang a hymn with the words, Utter consummate skill. Now today is the 150th anniversary of the birth of Franz Liszt, as you know. I didn't know. I was only 16. But for some reason my dear old dad expected me to know. Utter consummate skill, my father continued, is Franz Liszt and Frédéric Chopin playing a piano duet. That's an image of God honoring excellence I shall take to my grave. And then there's my offhand conversation with a prison chaplain who said, quite in passing, not thinking he was saying anything memorable, violence is what happens when we, when we reduce any individual or any group to utter powerlessness. There's immense wisdom here. The aged Anglican clergyman and professor who schooled me in the subtleties of Greek syntax and whose spiritual depth was fathomless. In the course of afternoon tea and casual chit-chat in his living room, he said, as though everybody knew already, Well, Victor, the worst consequence of sin is more sin. That line has edged me away from the abyss more than once. In my first year of seminary studies, decades ago, plainly, in my first year of seminary studies, I was crumpled in an automobile accident that killed three people, and I was hospitalized for 45 consecutive days. A nurse, considerably older than I, used to steal into my room and talk with me for a few minutes whenever she was working the night shift. Her husband had left her. Then she'd lost everything in a house fire. And now one of her children was in difficulty at school and in trouble with the law. Despite the fact that my spine was fractured, one-eighth of an inch below my spinal cord, several friends were dead, my father had died four months earlier, and I was 250 kilometers away from anybody who knew me, Despite this, she sought me out because she found in our late-night casual conversations comfort and encouragement and hope, truth. I can't tell you how often people who conversed with me informally have been a vehicle of grace to me. Some were educated, many were not. Like the New Brunswick lumberjacks I met on my first pastoral charge and who told me they had never, simply never, had a clergyman visit them in their backwoods shanty in the dead of a New Brunswick winter. The wood stove in the plywood shanty kept the indoor temperature only slightly above the outdoor temperature. And of course, I shall never forget the fellow mentally ill for 30 years and furious with a minister who had told him that mentally ill people couldn't be Christians because they can't grasp the gospel. In his fury, he shouted to me, do you have to be sane to be a Christian? On the contrary, Eric, I said. 
On the contrary, <laughs> let us never forget that our Lord's family thought him deranged, read it in Mark 3, and came to take him home before he embarrassed the family anymore. Let me repeat, I am the last person to belittle the preaching office. Necessary as preaching is, however, it is not sufficient. Conversation, along with many other activities, must always accompany it. Now, there are many kinds of conversation in this regard. There is the institutionalized conversation of pastor and counselee. <clears throat> There's a semi-institutionalized conversation around the church meeting. And, of course, the uninstitutionalized encounters at the ballpark, on the street, in the dentist's waiting room. I am convinced that there are God-fearers in your congregation and in mine. They have been attracted. They are intrigued. They find themselves wistful. They are tentative about their nascent faith and would feel pressured and awkward if they were asked to sign right now a denominational statement or a creed or a confessional faith. Nevertheless, they are moving in the right direction and they will be helped to a Lydia-like standpoint through countless conversations on the church premises and elsewhere in the community. Between Lydia and us, there stands a Christian thinker, a giant, dear to me, Martin Luther. In 1537, Luther penned a document called the Schmalkalt Articles. The Schmalkalt Articles mention five means of grace, the sermon, baptism, the Lord's Supper, absolution or the pronouncement of forgiveness, and mutual discussion and comforting of the brethren. The day came when Lydia was possessed of such resilient faith that she asked to be baptized. That is, she now wanted to confess her faith in Jesus Christ before the world. She did so. Then she opened her home to Paul and Silas. Opened her home. That means hospitality. More neighbors, more conversation, wider outreach, other God-fearers helped along the road to faith. And so the people of God grow in grace, in godliness, and in numbers. Amen. Would you stand, please? Seeking Jesus Christ, you did come. In his abidings, go now in peace. And the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ rest upon and remain with you always.